I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to... That's right, it's Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone. Oh, bit of a callback. I hope this one goes up after Elvis, otherwise it'll make no sense to anyone. Not that any of these podcasts make any sense to anyone, no matter what order they go up in, I guess. But yeah, this one's dedicated to The Black Phone which is a film about a young man who is ensnared by an older gentleman with evil designs. Oh, hang on, that's Elvis. I'm getting confused. No, it is. It's the Black Phone. Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone, based, of course, on the Joe Hill short story. And joining me, I've grabbed two colleagues Uh-oh. of such lethal cunning, using my big old black van and some lovely balloons, Ben Travis. Hello. <laughs> you put helium in the balloons. <laughs> Hello, and uh, and I'm also hang on. Can anyone We're, hear that ringing? Anyone I, hear that? I don't like this basement. It is a basement. It's literally a basement. Uh, I'm going to pick up this phone now. It is a caller on line two. Hello, caller <laughs> on line two. I really hope this podcast goes out after the, after the Elvis one. <laughs> Otherwise, this is going to make no sense. Uh, so, top ten favorite serial killers in films. Yes, please. Caller, Helen O'Hara from... London. <laughs> 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 Had to think about that one there for a second. Where am I? From Hello. basement. I am from basement. I'm from basement. <laughs> I'm from basement. Top ten serial killers on film. The grabber, Helen. Is the grabber is? Does the grabber grab you? Top ten is very limited. That's a big. That's, that's a, a big. That's ask. a big episode. Of the ranking. We'll that's probably a big never do. <laughs> the ranking that we won't do. Yeah, but yeah. um, but no. This is a this is a scary serial killer. I would not like to meet. There you go. Would not would not would not would, wish to be grabbed by would not wish the to grabber. be grabbed by. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Exciting stuff. Shall we hear from Scott Erickson before we get into the film? Let's. <laughs> yes, right. please. Okay. Anything. <laughs> it's very late in the day. I've gone a bit funny. So anyway, here is Scott Derrickson, uh, who is of course a co-writer and director of this movie. And I spoke to him about all kinds of spoilerific stuff. He was, as you'll tell from the interview, unaware it was a spoiler special interview until about two minutes in. But it's, it's fine. I talked him down off the ledge, and uh, here we are talking about. The Black Phone, and all the sundry spoilers contained within. Do please enjoy. How are you, sir? You good? I'm excellent, thank you. 
Excellent. Good, good, good. Uh, congratulations on the film. I saw it last night with a packed crowd. And uh, that's a hell of a thing you've done there. It is, it is a masterclass intention. Oh, God, thank you so much. That's music to my ears. <laughs> Have you seen it yet with a, with a big audience reacting in all the right places? Yeah, we had, we had two different test screenings, and that's when we knew the movie was really working. And then we premiered it at, at, the, at Fantastic Fest in Austin uh, last September, and then it played at Beyond Fest in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles. So I've seen it four times with an, with an audience, and I'm going to see it again Saturday night at Tribeca. Amazing, amazing. Have you tweaked it at all because of uh, of those responses, because of audience reactions? I did, yeah. And I, I you know, my attitude toward filmmaking is, uh, you know, you never finish, you you abandon. And uh, and for <laughs> me, I don't even abandon. I they may, I make them rip it away from me. There was a line after the Cinecon screening only a few months ago that I realized, oh, we need to change this line because it will really change the meaning of of the ending of the movie and will really help. And, uh, and, and it would, it costs a lot to go back in and remix everything, but I convinced the studio of its importance and they let me do it. So I, I'm still looking for ways to make the movie better if I can. Amazing. Uh, well, well, Scott, this is, um, I think we did one of these, in fact, I know we did one of these for, uh, for Dr. Strange when you came over to, to London. Uh, this is a spoiler special that will go out after the film has opened. Oh, wonderful. So I love it. I don't know whether that changes, whether you can tell us what line that was or, or not. Uh, yes. If it's going out that late in the, uh, what, what I found was a few, a few critics who had seen the movie had mentioned something along the lines of they didn't feel like it added up to enough at the end. And I thought, what do you, what do you mean? How can you possibly not see that all the missions that, um, that the ghost kids give to Finney, they look like failed missions during the movie, but in fact, they're, they're each giving him a piece of, of an instrument. They're giving him the material that he needs to defeat the grabber at the end. It's as though they can see in the, into the future. And, the, and, and I, and one critic that was a friend of mine. And so I, I, I texted him and I said, did you get that what the ghost kids were really doing was giving him um, all the pieces of material he needed for that final fight? And he goes, you know, I, I didn't really get that. So, uh, so we ADR, we went back uh, just like, uh, I don't know, seven, eight weeks ago and, uh, and added a line at the end when Robin is t- after Robin finishes his little training moment with the phone. And the last thing he says to uh, Finney uh, when he says goodbye is he says, uh, you know, uh, get out of here for me. Use what we gave you. And, he yeah. sa- and Finney says, I-, I will. And that little line actually really unlocked something because now I've heard, I've, I've been hearing more people talk about how it surprisingly all comes together at the end in a way that they weren't expecting. Yeah, it, it really does. And it, it's such a... Uh an emotional payoff to the film uh, as well when when Finney and, and Gwen reunite at the end um, which is obviously a, a, a different approach that Joe Hill takes in in the short story which is very much focused on Finney and I, and I kind of wanted to ask about I, I wanted to ask about that about expanding and reconfiguring the short story and giving giving Finney more of a family, giving his sister the sight, if you will. Uh, I hesitate yeah. to call it the shining, but you know, yeah, yeah, you, you, sure, call it the shining. I'll take that. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, an increase in the supernatural element is that? Is that? You know, where where did you where did you start when you wanted to expand this? Well, I had read the short story. You know, thir- I guess it was sixteen, seventeen years ago now, something like that. Right when it was published, and I always thought 
the black phone was a great idea for a movie. And Cargill and I have been talking for years about trying to adapt it uh, because I thought that, that the, the blending of a serial killer story with a ghost story was very fresh and very interesting to mm-hmm. me. I know when I'd never seen anybody effectively do that in a story, but it needed so much expansion and we just never could figure out really how to do that. And uh, while I was working on the sequel for Dr. Strange before I, I stepped off that project, I had been in therapy for three years talking almost exclusively about the trauma of my childhood, the violence that I grew up with, violence in my home, violence in my neighborhood, um, the violent things that happened to me and to people close to me. Mm. And, and I, I, uh, I suddenly had this eureka moment of thinking, well, what if I took the feeling and the kids I knew and my own experiences growing up in North Denver in the late seventies. And we, we used that to expand the black phone into a movie. And I called Cargill and I asked him what he thought. And he said, Oh, I get it. I'm in. I mean, immediately. And then we wrote the script in six weeks. It was, it was very easy. And, and the only part of really all the ghost kids are kids that I knew my neighborhood was violent like that. There were fights almost every day. There was violence in my household. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, and there was a lot of fear of, of serial killers. You know, the Manson murders had, had just taken place. Ted Bundy had killed a bunch of women in, in Colorado. Um, uh, and, and my next door neighbor, my friend who lived next door, knocked on my door one day uh, when I was nine and I answered and he was crying and he said, somebody killed, he said, somebody murdered my mom and his mother had been abducted and raped and wrapped in phone cord and thrown in the local lake. So my childhood experience was predominantly fear. That's the emotion I remembered with it. And, and I really wanted to make a movie about that time and place that felt the way that I felt. So that was the primary expansion, but in doing all of that, we were still left with a, a story that was almost entirely boys, including the grabber. Mm. And I wanted to have a female character at the heart of it. That was the heart of it and the soul of it. And that's when we came up with the, the idea of Gwen. there's an older sister mentioned in the short story, but there, she doesn't have much, in, uh, much value in the story. And, mm. and, uh, and so Gwen, you know, becomes this real centerpiece and has her own, storyline and it's the the movie is really about the bond between the two of them between finney and gwen yeah it's it's all building to that to that that final hug that very cathartic hug um yeah exactly which 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 must have been so important for you to to nail it was uh, the only, i think the only fight i had with the producers on the entire movie was uh over the scheduling because it was it was uh raining the day we were supposed to shoot that and i just said i'm not shooting the scene i'm literally not shooting the scene and then I was like, you can call the studio and tell them, but I'm, you know, we, we, we got to find something else to go do, but I'm not shooting this scene in, in more gray sky rain. Uh, Cause I needed it to be a sunny day. And it's sort of the only sunny, brightly lit scene in the movie. <laughs> That's I felt so strongly about just everything being right to capture the emotional power of that reunion. But of course the power is in the performances, you know, the, I, I still get choked up when I see Gwen first see him, and the way she stands and sort of slowly steps forward, like she can't believe what she's seeing. And then when she realizes it's real and she takes off running, it's, it's, you know, it's, that's real movie stuff there. Oh, it's, it's great. I mean, Madeline and Mason are fantastic. There's that, there's that scene where their father is, is wailing on her and 
basically making her promise not to use her gift again and her her tears are so real it it, it, it feels so real anyway let me tell you about that moment and, and how it was my favorite my favorite single moment in the entire movie is madeline's performance toward the end of that scene you know i i you know strategically didn't want to see the belt actually hitting her body so most of the actual whipping happens when he throws her on the floor and he's sort of wailing down and you hear her screaming hmm. uh, but you don't you don't see it and when she comes back up off the floor, yeah, she's in a, she's really in a weeping state already. And Jeremy Davies holds the belt over him, which was Jeremy's idea to make her say it three times. So this is how you have to be flexible with actors, you know? And Jeremy said, I want to make her say it three times. I said, okay, let's try it. So, you know, he says, tells her to say, my dreams are just dreams. And he says, say it again, you know, and then, and she's, and they're, like you said, they're real tears they are pouring down her face. Mm. And she says, my dreams are just dreams. And he's like, say it again. And then Madeline go, turns angry yeah. and fierce and she lashes out at him and, she's, and, she, and she grits her teeth and she says, my dreams are just dreams. And it surprised Jeremy. You can see his reaction like he wasn't expecting. It. And it's because that she understood that character so well that you can only push Gwen so far and she's going to fight back, you know? <clears throat> and so that moment is, it just typifies what I love about filmmaking, you know, when actors surprise you with truthful moments and uh and that was all madeline that wasn't my direction that was all from her own innate feeling on the inside out of who gwen was that's amazing so so where did that yeah. idea come from scott in the in the writing of this with 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 cargill to to give both her and and finney um, supernatural abilities because without Without Finney's latent ability, whatever you want to call it, I'm not again. I, I, I'm going to not not call it the shining. <laughs> yeah, um, he wouldn't hear the phone ring. That's my take that's on exactly, it. Anyway, that, yeah. that, that, no, that's exactly right. That's the first thing that Bruce Yamada tells him. He said, "You know, the phone rang, but for all of us, but but only, only you could heard hear it. it." Yeah, and uh, and and yeah, and it's a it's a proper read that that it's just sort of a latent ability that he has a bit of, and as does the grabber, but the grabber doesn't want to believe it, so he denies it. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, the, that was born out of uh, out of uh, you know a, a sort of a, an evolution of what the structure would be because I liked the idea of really creating a bond between these two, and and then she wants she spends the body of the movie during his abduction looking for him, and and you know I I was struggling with how to make that interesting and compelling enough if she was just following clues or just you know like that felt wrong for a nine year old to be doing that. And, and I thought, you know, we've got, we've already got ghosts in this movie. We've already got phone calls from the dead. You know, we can, we can dive deeper into the, into the mystical here if we want to. Mm. And then, and so the idea that she, um, that she would have dreams and she had sort of a prophetic instinct and, and that the clues she would follow were coming from uh, the other side, for lack of a better phrase, it became, was immediately interesting to me, you know, that she, she had this mystical gift and, and what was driving her search for Finney were the clues that she was getting, you know, from these prophetic dreams that she had. Mm. And, and, and then it became uh, a question of, you know, what's the backstory. That's what we gave the backstory of the mother and, and, and her suicide. And that's what sort of informs Jeremy Davies character, but it also, but then it became important for me, not important, but it became, it just felt right for me then to give Gwen her own private, spiritual life you know yeah. and, and and you know when she pulls all that shit out of her dollhouse 
you know, the rosary beads and the religious tract and the, and the, and the cross and everything and, and praise to Jesus. I, I don't get the feeling that she's inherited that from anybody. You know, this is just her own private view of, of spirituality and God and what's on the other side. Mm. And it's very authentic and it's very real. And I think children are like that. I was certainly like that. You know, I wasn't really raised in a religious home, but mm. I had a very strong, powerful, innate uh, belief in God in the other side. I remember some of my earliest memories being thinking as I looked around, I know this table's here and I know that chair is there, but the things I'm seeing are not the main things. There's a lot more here than I can see. That's, that's the real world. That's yeah. how I felt, yeah. you know? And so I wanted to give Gwen, uh, an, a, an external, you know, sort of ritualistic practice that, that, that gave us a sense of, of how she functioned in her own private space. And I love the fact that, you know, it's, you know, where else are you going to find a, a prayer that begins with Jesus? What the fuck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because she's just, it's all very authentic. It's all very her. It's all very personal. It's, it's not a, it's not a hand-me-down religion of any kind. Yeah, no, she's, uh, she's, she's glorious. Uh, also, the way she deals with the cops uh, as well is, is wonderful. Um, but, but it's interesting that the, 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 the power of dreams is such an important part of the film. Um, uh, again, without prying too much into what you were planning with Doctor Strange 2, I, I know that that would have been focused on dreams and nightmares and the concept of dream walking was, was your concept. So was that something that was still in the air when you started to work on the black phone that you still wanted to explore? I mean, I think that's in everything that I've done, you know, I, I, almost everything that I've done. I, I think that, that uh, I didn't intend for this to be the case. And I certainly wasn't, you know, uh, it was nothing um, strategic about it or, or, or intentional. But, but the, I think if there's a through line in all the movies I've made, it's that they, they really reject a materialistic view of the world because I, I reject a materialistic view of the world. And I think that one of the best things that cinema and especially horror cinema can give to the audience is at least the hope or at the very least to the atheist viewer, the fanciful notion that, uh, that the world is far more mystical than we think it is. I mean, I am a mystic. I think before I would describe myself as religious or even before I would call myself a Christian, I would say I'm a mystic. I believe that, that, uh, you know, what we know really about the nature of the world is just a drop in the ocean. And, mm. and, uh, and I think, and I think that's w exciting. You know, I think if you, I think when audiences have that feeling, whether it's watching ET or watching, you know, uh, uh, arrival, uh, you know, where it's, where it's a very scientific approach, or if they're watching, you know, the sixth sense or something like that, it's expansive and it makes you feel that the world is a more magical place. And I think that has great value because I think the world is an extraordinarily magical place. And, 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 and if you remove the possibility of those elements, boy, the world gets a lot smaller and a lot less interesting. Which is exactly what happens to the grabber, which uh, which I think is a really interesting notion. And you mentioned it there yourself uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, he has these gifts as well. He can hear the phone, but he doesn't believe it. He rejects it. He, he, he shuts that part of himself down uh, and i i and i and my my personally my fanciful idea about about uh the grabber is that if he didn't do that he might be able he might have been able to grow out of his sociopathology yeah you know i mean when i was in therapy my my therapist said to me at one time with no irony he said you do realize that your childhood was a ripe breeding ground for you to become a serial killer right <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, which I, which made me burst out laughing. And, uh, and I, I said, yeah, you know, but I really think that the saving grace in my life that, you know, kept me from turning into some kind of monstrous personality was, was that in, innate mystical belief, you know, that belief in God, that belief that I was a part of a bigger picture of things. And, and I think without that, I never would have found my way into moral life or into, uh, into a productive existence. You know, and I think the grabber is somebody who, by shutting that out, you know, shut out uh, his one avenue, his one possible avenue for uh, escaping his monstrosity. Mm. And was it was that something that you and you and Cargill discussed? It, it, you know, it, I think when people hear that line for the first time in the movie, the grabber can hear the phone. They might be expecting a, a third act revelation where he suddenly can hear it and twists it to his his own ends for some reason. But interestingly, you, you don't do that. Joe Hill didn't do that either. Uh, no, was, was that no, something you discussed? And, 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 we, and we also it, well, I think it. I know. I think it just showed up in the writing. We both saw that it was right. I don't remember who wrote those lines. I, I actually want to say Cargill was writing that kind of through line of the grabber, mm. um, kind of, kind of, uh, having the ability, but denying it. Um, but you know, I also, but I, but I, I, I think the grabber is interesting because of what we don't know about him. You know, we get little tidbits like that, but, uh, you know, when we did test screenings, the number one thing the audience would say was like, is there anything that, you know, you wanted more of? And everybody would say, I want to know more about the grabber. You know, why is he like this? What made him like this? And, and, and I got some pressure from the studio to, to sort of try that. And I said, no, you know, the, 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 the thing that makes a, 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 a sociopath, a, even just, we watch these serial killer documentaries because of their otherness, because of the mystery of like, why are they this way? And a lot of them had happy childhoods. You know, yeah. Ted Bundy had a good upbringing. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer had great parents, you know, it, it's like, what is, there's mystery in that kind of evil. And, you know, if it's like, the, the, you look at the Joker, you know, uh, Heath Ledger, Ledger's the Joker, maybe the most iconic villain of the last, you know, several decades. And when he says, you know, you want to know how I got these scars mm -hmm. and it, what works is that he just tells a couple lies and that we never really know. And I, and not knowing makes him far more terrifying. How boring would it be if there was a, if there was a, a scene that explained why Hannibal Lecter eats people? You know. <laughs> Good point. I mean, yeah. In, in fairness, there was I think in a, at least one Hannibal prequel which 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 passed me by in terms of the novels. Uh, we don't need to know. We we shouldn't peek behind the mask. Always uh, uh, is my opinion. And yeah, that's and, and that's why the mask works because it's just an, another layer of mystery. And I think that there is mystery in evil. And I think that what's what makes the the greatest villains is a fascinating, you know, uh, manner in 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 how they walk, how they talk, how they kill, whatever. And and that was the other idea was I wanted to put, have a mass killer like Jason, like uh, Leatherface, like you know uh, uh, Michael Myers, but he's really chatty. <laughs> I just wanted to ask about about the voices, about the boys who. Do help Finney get out of his predicament. Uh, I want. Can you talk about because again, those are expansions with the with the exception yeah. of, of of Brian, of course, from from the short story. Can you talk about choosing those boys, making each one different? I mean, there's 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 pretty much a full grown bully in there as well, and the order also must have been very very important for you. Ending with Robin, 
clearly. It was, it was very important. And like I said, they're each, each of the victims, um, each of the, each of the victims is really based on a kid that I knew and, and Robin being the primary one, the most important one, the Van Topper character was based on a kid that everybody in our school knew about. The kid was psychotic. He was dangerous. He, I, 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 I saw him fight a teacher in my classroom. I mean, full on like fist fight went at it, you know, and, and, you know, these are kids that, that I went to school with the Robin, Robin Ariano characters based on a real kid that, you know, I went the a neighborhood I grew up in was half white, half, half Mexican. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it wasn't marked by any kind of racial tension, at least not with the kids. Uh, we all mix fairly well, but, but Robin was a kid that I knew who was probably known as, uh, other than the, the psychotic, uh, Van Topper character was the sort of toughest kid in school. And, and he befriended me. He liked me and I was bullied and, you know, he would tell me to stand up for myself and sort of help me out once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, his lines, a lot of his lines are direct quotes that I remember. He, I remember him saying for, to me word for word after watching a fight behind the Safeway supermarket, which is what that first fight is based on. And he was trained. He could kick like that. You know, he fought like, he looked like Bruce Lee, you know, when he would fight. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember him saying, you know, I was just going to wail on him a bit. That wouldn't draw no blood. Uh, you know, it's an important in a situation like that to draw blood for the crowd. I remember hearing him say that to me and just feeling like, who is this alien person? I just had no relevant understanding of his, of his way of being, but I remember it, you know, and I, and I really liked the guy. So each of those kids was just, I think has a distinctiveness that I, that I remember in those, you know, and, and yes, the order was very important. I think, I think we, we spend some time getting to really, like Robin. And, and then we forget about it. And I, and I wanted the audience to sort of forget that he was even going to, that he was even going to call, you know, and, or that he was even going to be a part of, of, of the story. So that when he shows up at the end, it's like, Oh, Robin, you know, help, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's kind of the emotional effect of that moment, I think. Absolutely. And, and of course that, that line, uh, you know, it's important to draw blood for the, for the crowd, you know, is, is, something that inspires Finney to do what he does to the grabber at the end. But it's also something that from a filmmaking point of view, when you're making a movie like this must be going through your mind as well. Oh, for sure. You know, what I like about Finney is that he's strong from the beginning. He has it in him. He just hasn't had the courage or, or the, the, he hasn't reached a breaking point of having to stand up for himself and it really is a coming of age movie, you know, and a lot of what, what it means, whether you're a girl or a boy or, or, or somewhere on the, on the, on that continuum, you do have to reach a point in, in growing up where you stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't continue to be a victim. You can't, you have, you have to stand up to your bully bullies in some way, um, whatever it is that's, that's bullying you. And, um, and I, I find, I find that, to be an emotional thing because we, we all went through it in our own way. Everybody, everybody had something they had to learn to stand up to uh, as they were growing up. Yeah. I think it's really important actually that, that he's, you know, he has this, this background, he's clearly endured years of violence at the hands of his, his father. Uh, they've learned, they've learned to tiptoe around him, but he's inured to that. So it's important. I think that's important when he gets into the situation with the grabber, that he doesn't panic. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I do think I do think the worst scene, the harshest scene, the most difficult scene to watch in the movie is the whipping scene. Yeah, and 
you know, that, that was a commonplace in my, in my upbringing uh, that happened. Not, not, that was not uncommon, not uncommon for a lot of the kids on my block. Some of them got it worse. I remember Rod, a kid who lived at the end of my neighborhood running up to the house to where me and my friends uh, were hanging out and he was crying and he had these huge bleeding welts on the back of his leg because his father had whipped him with an electrical cord, you know? And it's like, that was just how it was. Now that's, and, and that's child abuse, you know, but the whipping scene that you see, mm. that's legal today. There are parents all over the country still doing that. You know, if child services was there, they wouldn't arrest the father. They wouldn't take Gwen away. Yeah. That's his, that's his right as a father, you know? And I think it is awful. You know, I think that, 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 you know, I am, I am against corporeal punishment. I think that, it, that all the studies indicate that it's very damaging, not mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah, I agree entirely. And, uh, but, but Scott, I've got to let you go. I just want to ask one last real quick thing if I, if I can, because uh, I'm, I'm always intrigued by how filmmakers choose to end their movies. Uh, and you end on that shot of, of Finney back at, back at school, you know, readjusting to life potentially potentially with his first girlfriend <laughs> at the yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that girl too. She was just some North Carolina local that, that we hired and she's, she's got a little star quality to her. I really like the Finney, Finney's little crush on her. It's great. But yeah, he's, you know, he, he when he's walking down that hallway and he sees the bullies, he has this very slight little smirk, like yeah. try it, try it now guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he's just like absolutely no fear. Uh, of those guys, you know, at that point, and and which is which is the, the the which is how it works, you know, trauma can if it doesn't destroy us, if it doesn't break us, it is the thing that makes us rise up, deal with ourselves, and become stronger and become uh, more self sufficient. And and you know, and then when he sits down, and he, and she calls, she says hi, Finny, and he says call me Finn. I love that moment because the only person who calls him Finn in the entire movie is Robin. Robin always calls him Finn and everybody else calls him Finny. So I, I like that that's a little uh, nod of respect to the fact that Robin saw, he, he saw the young man in Finny the whole time. Amazing. And does he take her to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I, I suspect he does. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. That'd be amazing. Uh, Scott, I'm going to let you go, but it's been an absolute pleasure as always, sir. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Likewise. Thanks so much. Okay, so that was Scott Derrickson, and now let's dig into the Black Phone folks, uh, Helen and Ben, of course, joining me here. So, yeah, I said in the podcast when this movie came out that it might be my favorite Scott Derrickson film. Mm. Uh, I I was high on grabbing at the time, so I I don't know, you know, (laughs) it might be, uh, Doctor Strange is great. It is really. I love Sinister. Mm -hmm. Deliver Us From Evil is pretty good. You can't really argue about the, the the day the earth stood still. No, there's there's really really good stuff in his filmography. He's a really good horror director. I think this one might be in the sweet spot for me, and that it's really scary. Mm-hmm. It's got really good character stuff. Yep. Very very good central fill-in performance from Ethan Hawke. Very Hulk, good. Yeah. Which is very important for movies like this. Uh, I love the central relationship, the brother and sister relationship, and it's funny in that very, very dark, mordant way that, you know, the best Stephen King and offspring stories <laughs> can be. So, I don't know. Doctor Strange is great for me, but I think this, I think I'm going to stand by that. I think that's fair. I like the, I have a soft spot for the exorcism of Emily Rose as well, which I find very scary, and which also got me one of my earliest Empire junkets, 
So I got to go to New York and talk to people about it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, did you wake so up at 3 a.m.? I did wake up at 3 a.m., which mm-hmm. I do not recommend after watching that film. Yeah. It's very scary. So but, I love that film. And it scared the shit out of me in a way that this film didn't. Mm. Because supernatural shit scares the shit out of me in a way that serial killer shit doesn't. Even though serial killer shit is more likely to happen to me than supernatural shit. But Or is it? Discuss. Or is it? <laughs> no, or a yes, supernatural yes. serial killer. Uh, now we're talking. But, you know, stuff about, you know, religion and the devil and possession and stuff. All that gets me, even though I am, you know, touch whatever the hell this is for Micah. I am agnostic. But, you know, you got to... That, there's that 1%, isn't there? There's that 1% that goes, oh, there might be something in this. And then I might be possessed, not by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu, but by Pazuzu, or one of his many acolytes. Uh, and because I'm an unbeliever, I'll be more vulnerable oh, no. to being possessed. Oh, no. I thought Chris had been possessed for a long time. Now, <laughs> that would not be surprising to me. It's the only explanation. I think... In Tell term- me my <laughs> Again, Chris's normal voice. You finally heard it on the podcast for the first time. Um, it's basically Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> oh, he's oh, back. God. So you're now you're channeling other spirits. Except I always cut him out of the podcast when he appears. So when you say he's back, he's actually never been. But okay, go on. But the Black Phone, I think is maybe, it's Scott Derrickson's like warmest movie considering the spooky shit going on in this film and and the the very nasty sounding premise it's actually got a lot of warmth and heart to it in a way that sinister is a very scary film and that is also quite a like a nasty film sort of gleefully nasty and you feel for the characters in it but it doesn't have the heart that this has especially with its kind of teenage heroes and its idea of, of kids helping each other and looking out for each other in this in this very oppressive world of of violence i think you feel it's maybe his most likable film i would yeah. say yeah i think that's absolutely right i think it's like a darker amblin or a, a slightly more focused stranger things you know in that sense of having the kids like each other in the sense of having characters who have lives beyond just the scary thing that's happening right now um and and that sense of interconnectedness i think gives it gives it its real heart and its real kind of moment, momentum as well you're so stressed for this character not just because he's a kid in danger finney this is is a kid in danger but also like you see what impact that will have on his community you see the impact of losing other kids on him already and on his classmates and you know that if he doesn't come home, his sister is going to be absolutely devastated. And, it, you know, it's just, it all gives you more reason to care. It's not just this isolated, you know, clean clinical look at what if a scary thing happened to you. Mm-hmm. It's what if a scary thing happened to your entire community in a way. And I like that sense of of belonging. I like that sense of a bigger context to the story and not just what if one family, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all that stuff is uh, a reason why I connected with this movie a little bit more than I did with The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which, to complete the point I was trying to make before I got possessed, uh, was a film that really scared the shit out of me, quite frankly. Uh, but it was all the supernatural stuff. The courtroom drama stuff maybe doesn't quite have the same impact. But this is great from, from minute one because of the humanity and because of the human aspect and because we get to know... Uh, Finney, and we get to know Gwen. Yeah, 
uh, and her outburst at the cops in particular is it's just a, it, you know we watched this in a very raucous audience I don't think you were there Helen I no I saw it separately and we watched this as a very raucous audience and the moment when, when Gwen explodes at the cops and calls them, you know, motherfucking cocksuckers or whatever it is that she's, she says, you could just feel an entire audience kind of just fall for a character as, you know, in just one fell swoop, of, you know, gales of laughter and people going, yes, okay, I will follow this little girl now to the end of the earth. You, you have me now. And that aspect of it all really got me, that brother-sister aspect, which is a completely new addition to the story. If you've ever read the Black Phone short story, it's quite short, it's only about like nine chapters long. It's available either as part of the 20th Century Ghosts uh, anthology or it's part of, uh, or it's available on its own as a short story if you yeah. want to buy it for like two quid or something. And, you know, it's almost entirely all Finney in the basement on his own. There's aren't as many ghost kids that he communicates with. And certainly there's, there's a sister, but she's older than he is and there's no shininess to it all. So these are all additions and, and uh, augmentations of Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, his co-writer. Yeah, and I love the amount of time this film spends outside the basement. Yeah. I think with the trailers and stuff that we'd seen before going into the film, you go, okay, it's one of those like character locked in a room how are we gonna spend I don't know 90 minutes with a character in a room and the answer is you're not because I, I mean I wasn't timing it I saw this on my own I saw this on a screening put on just for me which was oh. quite a spooky experience uh, especially also when my airpods got trapped physically in the seat at the end and I spent 10 minutes trying to poke it out without chopping my finger off uh, oh, which was good. its own uh, stressful uh, situation. Did you get a mysterious call to help you do that? Yes, many ghosts helped me retrieve <laughs> my AirPod cases. Um, but I forgot the point. <laughs> I was making I'm scary. Just, how long it's outside the. Oh, yeah. But it felt to me like you get, at the very least, I don't know, half an hour, mm. maybe 45 minutes of this film where you were just living with the kids and especially closely with Finney and getting to know the other kids in the school and the other kids who are being taken and his home life and what all of that means. And as you say, all of that is new material here. That's not part of the novella. And I think it's so central to why the film works in the way that it does. I, I think absolutely it adds so much to the to the story, and it, it but it feels of a part with the book because it's one thing that Joe Hill does really well. He does relationships really well. I mean, I don't want to harp on about his dad Stephen King, but we also kind of have to. His dad Stephen King. I know, right? But like, it is it, it's something that they share. They are superb at creating a sense of place and time, mm -hmm. and a group of people interacting like real people with each other. I genuinely would put Stephen King up there with the greatest, like, you know, Dickens and people like the greatest popular writers ever. Would you in say terms he's of in the creating top 10 writers of all time? Top 10 writers of all time. No, top 10 creators of like a, sen a sense of time and place. Genuinely, I would okay. actually specifically to that. But, um, but I think Joe Hill does that really, really well as well. And I think they've taken that from their shared literature because there are crossovers between their books at this point. Um, and they've they've sort of brought in stuff that feels organic to the story and they've brought in stuff that feels right for this creation and they've given it this, this like I say, wider context and wider world and I just love it. I also just think Joe Hill's a hell of a writer. I he think is. he's 
I think Heart-Shaped Box is one of the scariest things I have ever, and I hope ever will read, because that was fucking terrifying. Yeah. Nosferatu is much more ambitious and much more kind of sweeping, and it's great as well, also very scary. But Heart-Shaped Box, jeez. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that book will shit you up. It really will. It will shit you up, yeah, he's, he's tremendous. Uh, he is really, really great, and you know, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, but I think he's 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 got his old man's chops. Mm-hmm, uh, give me back my chops. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now those all get eaten by surely by the uh, the hell beast corgi that they have. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Um, so yeah, the, he's such a great writer. I've just realised he changed his name. I wonder if part of the reason why he changed his name was because his real name is Joe King. Uh, just joking. <laughs> just joking. Only joking, mate. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, but really, I want to be a serious writer. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't quite work. Uh, but he's fantastic. And um, I think they've done a really great job of just expanding the short story. Yeah. Because, I, again, just to reiterate the point, it is incredibly short. And, you know, if you adapted it authentically, um, you know, without changing anything, I think it'd be maybe 30 minutes of material in that, mo- in that, in that movie. So, yeah. Did you see the one thing, I don't know if, I haven't listened to the interview yet, if Scott talked about this, one of the things that they changed was uh, they they changed the line, uh, but I'm a I'm part-time clown to part-time magician. Because when King, sorry, when Hill wrote the story, it had been a long time since he'd read or seen it. And in the meantime, it, chapter one, chapter two came out and reminded people that scary clowns were kind of a thing that his dad did a while back. Yeah. So they changed clown to magician. You don't need to remind people that clowns are scary, though. No, you really don't. No. I mean, you keep using the word supernatural, so naturally supernatural is on my mind. And uh, that's the one thing that scares one of the boys in Supernatural. The other thing clowns. is something, anything that covers their nipples. Of course. T-shirts. Well, that, that obviously scares both of them. Fabric Again, of any kind. Covered Almost the entire 15 seasons. I, I terrified as a result. Out. They're a very brave boys. Very, very brave. Yeah. So brave. So, so brave. brave. Perhaps they should take Except their shirts a, off to celebrate. <laughs> Except around cra- uh, clowns for one of them. Right. And planes for the other. Wow. Is there an episode where there's a plane filled with clowns? <laughs> Thankfully that be... not. That would really fuck them both up. That really I've had would it with these motherfucking clowns <laughs> on, on this motherfucking plane. <laughs> <laughs> Smell my flower. We all float up here. I will say, though, like, magician who rides around in a black van is definitely on the clown end of creepy things. Of the magician spectrum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, is he a magician? How much do we know about the grabber? We don't know anything about him. We don't know his name, his occupation. Lee Grabber. (laughs) Lee Grabber. (laughs) Just looked for a man called (laughs) Lee Grabber. Oh my God, that would have solved so many. Although, you know, you get the sense that the cops are very incompetent in this movie. But there's so much, I mean, if you'll have heard the, um, the interview with Scott Erickson by now, or at least I hope you have. If you've skipped that to get to this, then woe betide you. Uh, but in it, he talks about how this is a very, very personal film for him, that, uh, you know, Finney is essentially Scott Derrickson. North Denver in 1978, that's exactly where Scott Derrickson grew up. He was... He, you know, he's talked about the violence that he saw as a kid, the violence that he experienced when he was a kid, and that all pours into making a really layered protagonist. Yeah, I think the thing that the film does a really great job of getting across is 
the danger of the world that Finney is already in. He is living in a deprived neighborhood. He is growing up around abuse and always waiting for this repercussive violence where you don't know if it will be there or not. And it's it's the waiting in this film that I think it does an incredible mm-hmm. job of because both in the scenes where Finney is at home and the scenes where he's trapped in the basement, you you and he are both waiting for violence that you don't know if it's going to come or not. And I think the way that the film goes, do you know what? His his home life is not really that much worse than being in the grabber's basement. Feels like a lot of what the film is about. It's not about somebody who... It's not somebody's loss of innocence who has lived this very safe life and suddenly finds themselves in extreme danger. He He lives in a dangerous violent world and has always just had to deal with that among the the little glimpses of nice things that you get here as well of just hit the friendships that he has and the, the sort of conversations that he has with his sister and like I love that scene early on I think that's with Robin where they're in the toilets talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. and the way Derrickson allows those scenes to exist as these little pockets of normal niceness in this wider world that is scary and violent and that those things don't negate each other, it feels very matter-of-fact in the portrayal of all of those things. Mm. And when he gets taken by the grabber, he is in equally, well, maybe, let's face it, worse, but not that much worse circumstances than he was already in. And I think that was very striking watching the film. Yeah. To the extent that the world is violent in the film, obviously that's quite a a cynical outlook. I guess you have to do the Mr. Rogers thing. You have to look for the helpers. All the people who eventually go out on these manhunts, uh, who volunteer for these, all the police who eventually start to figure things out, but are going door to door in fairness before that. You know, his sister especially is just this shining light in more ways than one. Mm. Um, and and I think so. There, there's some balance in this, but yeah, it's definitely a, a quite cynical view of the world at times. But I, I think from because I haven't spoken to him after the film came out, but I did a trailer breakdown with Scott Derrickson for this um, <clears throat> months and months ago, and something he brought up there uh, that, as you say, Chris, this feels like a very personal film was growing up in a neighborhood where violence was normalized not just at home but like the scenes early on in this where the school kids mm. are like waiting around corners to beat the shit out of you and the those scenes don't hold back either i think it, no, that I does don't. a really good job of like there is blood there are knuckles flying it feels sort of visceral and you don't know where the next sort of hit is coming from in in this neighborhood and in life um i i, I think that comes across really strongly as well in, in kind of tapping into Derrickson's own childhood and, and into Finney's story. Yeah. Here. And obviously he's a very spiritual filmmaker. He's a, he's a Christian in real life and he's a very, very uh, strong Christian. He's very strong Christian beliefs and, you know, those sometimes are overt in his work and uh, sometimes they're not. Uh, do, do you see them, uh, do you see them picking through in this? There's the, there's the, the concept of you know, ask, looking for the helpers, as, mm-hmm. as Helen was saying. Um, but there's the concept of forgiveness, which is very interesting to me uh, in this movie. The 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 father, Finney and Gwen's father, played, of course, again by Jeremy Davis, is almost forgiven at the end. And is that is that 
you know, for you, do you think that does Derrickson's faith in a way peeking through a little bit? Do you think it's maybe, you know, a, a, a kid who experienced shit growing up, forgiving, finding it in themselves to forgive the people responsible for that, whether it's a parent or whether it's someone else? Or is there more going on there? I, th- I think, look, I mean, forgiveness is a very, very powerful thing. I mean, if 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 they can move on from this period in their lives where he has been abusive to them, and if he can obviously stop and somehow make amends for that and they can forgive him, that's amazing. That's incredible. No one's gifts. saying, yeah, no one's saying they owe him that or anything like that. That would be obnoxious. But like... If if this has been him turning over a new leaf, realizing the horror of what he's put them through, and 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 truly changing, then that is that is really powerful. And you hope that there is some kind of redemption like that, not not for his sake, but for theirs. For theirs at the yeah. end of the film. Um, but I think there there are elements in this that could kind of tie in with Christian, I think, uh, ideology or theology. Really, the idea that you know, in the afterlife or in, in maybe the waiting room almost of the afterlife and in some kind of limbo where these ghosts are waiting, um, they've lost their selves, they've lost their identity first before they lose the will to help others is kind of an interesting idea. And it's it's something that you don't often see. Ghost stories are often, ghosts are looking for revenge, they're looking for closure, they're looking for some kind of uh, answer to something maybe they couldn't ask in life. Here they're actively trying to help someone else and that seems to be what brings them peace. And that's an interesting well, difference. A smattering of revenge going on. That's a smatter- what I, I oh, definitely. So, okay, some revenge as well. But, but the But the priority is here is how you escape. It's not here's how you kill him. Yeah. You know, and that that's interesting. And the fact that they've lost their names, they don't know who they are, is again getting past individualism maybe towards something more kind of mm-hmm. universal. That line, though, I found so chilling oh, when yeah. the ghost tells him, oh, I can't remember my name. It's the first thing you lose. I was like, oh, that was... I, I could imagine that. I haven't read the uh, novella, but I could imagine that being a... If you were writing something and you wanted to come up with something really spooky that just sends a chill <laughs> down your spine, and be like, ooh, that's a spooky line. Um, it's interesting, yeah, you're talking about this in relation to faith, because... For me, it kind of feels less overtly religious and more, as Helen said, faith in people or certain people in in goodness, that there are pockets of goodness out there in the world Um, rather than any specific deity. In fact, I love one of my favorite lines of the film is uh, Gwen doing her prayer when she wakes up and she says, Jesus, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think it gets almost a sense of frustration with higher powers are more like you have to rely on the people around you who are able to help you rather than anything more divine than that. Um, I mean, maybe there's some reconciliation between all of those forces, but to me it felt like a more humanistic film than a religious one. Um, and in that sense, I think that that sense of humanistic outlook even extends to an extent to Mason, no, Finney and Gwen's father as well, in that it in no way excuses his abusive behavior, Mm -hmm. but also it extends him some grace of the trauma that he has been through and lets the audience in on the fact that he, he has shut down after the death of his wife and that Gwen's visions are inherited from his widow 
and the signs of that is sort of re-traumatizing him. And so without... And, and also he's worried for her if she leans into these visions that there is an element of skewed, fucked up, an attempt to protect her. Mm-hmm. One gone wrong, but that's, you know, there, there's not, it's not an entirely evil uh, motive. Yes. Yeah, I, I think this film operates in complicated ideas, in being here but being not here, in kind of being... Yeah, able to understand people without condoning the violence that is dealt out. I think yeah. it it deals in some kind of grey areas in a very nuanced way. And as I was saying, in the kind of the bleakness of the world versus the hope and the joy that is out there too, without those things kind of combating each other. It, it's interesting where the grabber fits in on all this, because obviously the mask in its full form is rather demonic it is rather satanic in a sort of very classic satan kind of mask um so that and there's and there's an element of him having rules and it's only if you break the rules that you can be punished there's a sort of a again this this idea of you know divine retribution almost rather than just rather than simple madness if it's if that makes sense um but i'm fascinated by the way the mask changed by the way he he took bits, he, that, that it was changeable, that there were alternative mouths, or there were alternative, he would somehow sometimes come in with the bottom half on, sometimes the top half, the bottom half would change, that it was so mutable, it wasn't a fixed face mm-hmm. of evil, it was a face of evil that changed and that you had to keep adapting to. Which... This again felt to me analogous to some of the like abusive alcoholic father thing of like you don't know which guy you're going to get the rules are there but you don't know the rules you have to try and work out the rules for yourself and adapt and react accordingly to not be on the receiving end of of violent acts like Mm -hmm. that felt like Mm -hmm. again part of the, the the guessing game that the grabber presents is this unknowable who you somehow have to intuit what they're feeling and what their kind of present emotional state is so that you can act accordingly to not get hurt. Which again feels like, yeah, like what Finney has been going through for a long time. And I, I think the way that Ethan Hawke interacts with those masks, flipping heck, that oh. performance is unbelievable. And the the way that they have created that mask precisely to the contours of Ethan Hawke's face so that whether he's just wearing the top half or just wearing the bottom half and it it blends seamlessly in with his cheekbones and stuff and you believe in the face that he presents even when it's masked ah oh, it's unbelievable yeah. it's incredible yeah really is there's a lot about the grabber that's very very interesting um one of the things i find most interesting is that he can hear the phone ring too mhm but he doesn't What's, like to admit it. But he doesn't like to admit it. I What's think, going on there? I think there's an element of of potential gone wrong there. I think I think that's that's the most I feel like we get of his backstory, and it's exactly as much as I want. You know me and villains with sympathetic backstories. Oh, you want like my off. Grabber prequel then, in which yeah, the I Grabber is is redeemed <laughs> oh, God. at the end. Yeah, it's he just, learns the joys of grabbing. Yeah, it's, Poor it's, old Gary it's, Rabber. <laughs> he, never, he never stood a chance. <laughs> hey, maybe we should try this Gary Rabber guy who lives with his brother Max. 
Yeah, he. I just, I don't need, you know, this. the, the whole point of this to me is that he is unknowable. He is this force. Um, and he, and that is much more powerful the less we know about his origin, the less we know about why he does what he does, and the less we know about, you know, what scares him, what what affects mm-hmm. him. The only real piece we're given is that is that thing about he can hear the phone ring, but he doesn't like to admit it, and that's that says to me that something has gone wrong. That that's you know, that there has been something twisted along the line that he had a potential for maybe greatness or kindness or or some kind of connection with this external force and he chose to walk away from it. He chose Possibly, yeah. to bury him. Or perhaps in the act of killing these children in some way he has opened up some sort of pathway to the to the great beyond. I mean potentially I by don't, which he is being tormented by this. I don't like the idea that the deaths have empowered him in that sense. I don't, I, I just instinctively, I don't like that. I, I wouldn't say that's empowered, but yeah, okay. Um, but I think that the, yeah, the idea that he's tormented by it, I, I do like. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. We're a controversial <laughs> viewpoints here in the Emperor Podcast. We are unequivocally saying, Fuck the grabber. Um, but not in that way. Not, not in, in that sex way. way. Not, not in a no. sex way. No. no. Okay, but is there is there another reading of the the different masks? Because whenever he you know is presenting different states to to Finney, there seems to be almost different people. Yeah, I thought that. So as well. is there an element of perhaps supernatural there? Maybe an element of, of possession to some degree, or is it just full full cray cray? I wondered about that, and look, it is possible that there's an element of you know maybe voices through the phone came through years ago and took him over but the fact that all of the voices want the same thing all of the personalities want Finney locked in the basement yeah you know that's that's where I kind of stumbled on that theory okay yeah yeah because none of them are willing to really seriously consider letting him go and there's no real sense of conflict between them you know the very very obvious comparison to Split you know, there's no sense that there's one of these guys that you can lean on. It's not like he comes in with his eyes out of the mask and the bottom of his face covered and now you can actually trust him. It's not, there are, there are differing shades perhaps of psycho killer, but they're all psycho Guess killer. So. <laughs> for me, I I don't know if I can really break this down more than the fact that for me, I, I kind of think the film doesn't work if Grabber is in any way supernatural. I think it kind of he needs is, him. He is supernatural. If you can hear the phone ringing, he's he's supernatural in some way. There's something about him that is. He does beyond... have his shirt off in one scene. <laughs> Free the nipple. Um, uh, no, but in That's the sense of being, I don't know possessed in some way or or kind of ha- being a conduit for things I think he just needs to be a fucked up horrible bad guy dude. I think so yeah. and the I I love the idea of the the terrible things that he's done become his undoing because those spirits are able to help Finny escape but also kill the fuck out of him fuck that guy um but not like that but not like that and yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about that for me. If he becomes this supernatural evil, I think that that unbalances the film in some way where the fact that he's just this awful, awful guy and one of many awful people in Finney's life 
has more power than him being some literal kind of bogeyman. I agree. All right. Okay. Well, of course, he hears the uh, the phone at the end. He hears he hears stuff. He knows that you know because I think he's he's perhaps someone who is deliberately shutting down that part yeah, of himself and that's you know shutting it you know shutting it aside, going nope, that is that's not true. What I'm hearing that is absolutely not true, and he's rejecting the spirituality and in favor of in favor of a. Uh, Becoming, quite frankly, um, um, a dickhead. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. He's wow, a dickhead. we are Ooh. coming in hot I'm today. sorry, I'm sorry, Ooh. Mr. Grabber. I think he ignores the phone because one time he picked it up and a voice on the other end just went, fuck that guy. <laughs> he was like, oh, what? Really? I'm not answering this again. Can <laughs> I interest you in double glazing? <laughs> no, no, thank you. Thank you. Have you been involved in an accident that wasn't your fault? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, they're all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, grabber injury lawyers for you. Um, have you have you been injured by a grabber? <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I also like, by the way, can I just say, I also like that the ghosts weren't omnipotent. So he he makes his he makes his uh, hole through the wall, but they don't know that there's a big fridge in the way now that you can't get past yes. and that they, you can't open the door of the fridge. They only have the information they have. They don't know everything. They're not yes. just connected to a higher power and able to tap into the angelic network or whatever mm-hmm. to get him free. There, there, there are certain things about the grabber as well that might bear closer scrutiny. One of the questions people would ask about this movie is why does he take so long to kill Finney? I think he connects with Finney in a way that he perhaps doesn't connect with with the other kids. They don't, they don't necessarily, Finney doesn't immediately tick the naughty boy checklist that he has. He doesn't fall for the traps that the grabber sets. But also you get the sense, and I think that maybe we could have done with maybe more than one scene of um, James Ranson, Ranson as, um, as Max, mm. his brother. Although maybe that would have given away the twist, I don't know. You know, you get the sense that this is a guy who actually has a job and he has a nine to five and he has a brother who's shown up out of nowhere and even though he's in the house across the street then he has to kind of try and keep it on the down low a little bit and not tip people off that he is he's got a kid stashed in his basement so there's you know those aspects this kind of kind of quite normal sad pathetic air to him I think stems from that yeah the Max character was I have to say my main issue with this film, which I think in so many ways, as I said, is I think is very nuanced and carefully calibrated and really well considered. The Max subplot to me felt like it came from somewhere else. And I appreciated a little bit of levity in there. I mean, I do think there are moments of levity, as I said. The, the, I think it's quite a lot funny of Gwen's stuff. Quite funny, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but having that character come in, it felt suddenly like a contrivance in a way that the rest of the film felt weirdly believable for a film about uh, dead kids calling on a phone and yeah that as as fun as that reveal was of of James Ransom there with his big you know board of clues and trying to connect the dots and having somebody else who seems invested in finding out who the grabber is because the police aren't doing the best job of that uh, the 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 fun reveal of the kind of pan down into the basement you see Finney's right there is really like a, a bit of a boost of energy to the film at that point. But I, I think the cartoonishness of that reveal feels like it doesn't necessarily operate within the reality of everything else, even the supernatural stuff. 
Yeah, where is he, for example, when Finney breaks out and, and runs away? And it clearly is implied he's a drug addict. Well, it's not even implied. It's basically stated he's a drug addict, so he has issues of his own. Perhaps he's conked out. Perhaps he's in the other house by that point. You know, yeah, but I think it's one of those things that perhaps needed to be fleshed out a little mm. bit more. One more scene, especially since it's a, such a fun, kind of unhinged performance in James Ransom. But... Uh, uh, who was obviously so good at Siggy in the second season of The Wire. But, you know, he's, um, you know, it's it's interesting you talk about serial killers and, you know, maybe that goes to the idea that so many serial killers ply their trade, so to speak, or, or in, you know, pursue their hobby, if you, if you will, for a better phrase, uh, under the noses of their closest friends and family, spouses, neighbors, you know, brothers, yeah. neighbours, you know, uh, and... But yeah, again, I think some people have bumped up against the fact could would Max, even in his drug adult state, really not have noticed that his brother was a creepy serial killer who spent a lot of his time sitting in his kitchen asleep, you know, watching a basement door whilst wearing a mask with his, you know, I'll be honest, Helen, nipples on display. <gasps> Steady yeah. on. Next up, you'll be saying his ankles are out. Good Lord. <laughs> in this heat? In this economy? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's that's the that's entirely believable, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I think, look, it, the, to the extent that again, the the kind of if you like Christian morality and just general morality of the film comes in, it is about the connections between people being a good thing and isolation of people being a bad thing. You know, the more connected we are, the safer we all are, and and. Um, it's the fact that nobody knows about the abuse that Finney and Gwen are suffering that makes it possible. It's the fact that, um, you know, the the teachers overlook all the bullying in school that makes it possible. Uh, once, if everyone's paying attention to each other, then the grabber couldn't grab. It's it's in the spaces in between. It's in the bits where we're not connected. It's in the uh, the moments of loneliness that, you know, we're most vulnerable and most and that danger is greatest. And so that all kind of seemed to make sense to me. All right. Uh, just a couple of last things before we wrap up. Uh, on a just basic scary level, did this movie get you? Did it, you know, there were a couple of nicely executed jump scares. Some of the appearances of the ghost kids got me. I'm going to be honest, it it didn't. And I was quite surprised hearing people coming out of the multimedia screening, the bigger sort of packed out screening, as you said. Of, I made noises. Of the I jolts and all of that. Because, and in fact, as I went into the, the review screening for this, which as I say, was on my own, the security guard said to me as I walked in, he said, watch out, it's quite jumpy. <laughs> <laughs> He's obviously had to sit and watch this at another screening and, and had the crap scared out of him. So, okay, all I can see now is just, you know, the cameras on the security guard uh, outside the room and all you can hear from inside is is Ben screaming, Ah! My AirPods! <laughs> Ow, my fingers! <laughs> They're trapped in the chair. Oh no! Uh, the thing for me that I think is incredibly well done is the tension here. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where Finney, well, he does successfully escape until he suddenly hasn't escaped anymore. Um, but the, the, the breathlessness of that, the the way Scott Derrickson creates that tension and the way that he's really built up the grabber to that point and Finney as well as a character who is extremely careful and very capable so you know he's got it in him it doesn't feel like a totally doomed 
kind of attempt from the start, apart from the fact that it's probably too early in the runtime for him yeah. to actually escape at that point. But you feel like he's got it in him, and obviously he does because he does su- successfully escape the house briefly. Um, but the the specter of again of waiting of of waiting for the thing that you think is coming, but you don't know for sure if it is. Um, I think all of that stuff got me more than any of the jumpy bits. Mm. But I've heard lots of people say since then that it made them jump out of their skins. And I kind of would have loved to have been in that packed screening and been no, a part of that it reaction. Got, it got me, yeah. the, the ghost, the first ghost kid mm. appearing. Yeah, that's a big that's a big one. But also, um, the tension is incredible, though. And yeah. I was... I was so on edge the whole time he was digging the hole. I was like, how are you going to get all of that? Is he not going to hear the toilet flushing all the time? I'm so stressed. Like, what, what if he hears the toilet flushing all the, the time? Basement soundproof, Helen. It's fine. I mean, but what if, he, what if he's just outside the door, though? Ah. The thing is, uh, maybe this, this goes to the grabber's carelessness uh, as well, that he's become so inured to all this. He's, mm. so, he's so practiced now as, as a killer. Like, does he not notice the fact that some things in the room have changed. That there's now a carpet over the over over the floor, and you know, oh, what's why is there a carpet there? Oh, there's a big fucking hole. What have you been doing to this place? You know, I, I wondered if that that might have happened, but maybe that's maybe that's convention, maybe that's cliche, where the grabber realizes, oh, you've been you've been meddling, have you? You've been trying to escape, even after he escapes. There's no like, how did you get out? How did you know that I was asleep? How you know? There's no there's no investigation of that. No, I think that would imply a little bit too much thought on the mm. grabber's part, and I think he's meant to be a bit more purely terrifying. I don't think you want him to be as as rational and logical as to ask those questions on screen. All right. I mean, you, you do want him, well, you would like him to be rational and logical and not grab people, just for the record, but, you know, we can't have that. Down on grabbing, down on the causes of grabbing. Yeah, grabbing <laughs> That's <bad>. our position. <laughs> well, we've we've come down hard on grabbing here. We really have. Uh, grabbers are reeling right now. If, if you're a grabber and you're listening to this, then I'm sorry, mate. Um, and it's probably you're probably a man. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, sorry, pal, but this podcast is not for you. There might be some podcasts out there that are friendlier towards grabbers. And listen, you can gravitate towards those if you will, but. The Empire Podcast says no to grabbers. Yes. No. <laughs> yes to saying no. Yes, we no. say no. Yes, yes we, say, we no. say no. We say no to saying, we say yes to saying no to grabbers. Yes, that's All clear. Right. We're oh, so going to get grabbed now. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely going to happen. Uh, last thing I wanted to talk about is Gwen's visions and her shininess and the use of, of dreams and nightmares in the movie as a form of investigation and communication, uh, which is interesting, as you heard in the interview with, with uh, Scott Derrickson, um, or at least I said in the interview with Scott Derrickson, that it the concept of dreamwalking in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the concept of you know exploring dreams, was something that obviously predates Scott Derrickson, but it was something that he came up with for that movie. It was something that he wanted to uh, explore in that movie when he was attached to it. This is a movie he obviously made after he left that movie with, you know, that old chestnut, creative differences. Um, But, you know, having talked to some people for Doctor Strange 2 in its finished state for our spoiler specials, I can't remember whether it was Richie Palmer, the co-producer, or Michael Waldron, the writer, who said that that Dreamwalking was a concept held over from 
Scott Derrickson's draft and there was also a, more of an emphasis on nightmares as a way into the multiverse and you know obviously it was long rumoured that the character Nightmare was going to be the big bad guy in in Derrickson's version of, of that movie. So this movie to me seems to be a way to kind of port over that fascination with dreams and with nightmares and with you know the, the thin veil between the waking world and the sane world and reality and what lies beneath. I think as well, it feels formally playful in a very Scott Derrickson way. And if you look at something like Sinister, one of my favorite things about Sinister is this idea of the the Super 8 footage that Ethan Hawke finds in the attic. Um, playing that footage back sort of brings Bagul back. Is it Bagul, the Bagul. demon? And the idea of things Just captured on, like physically capturing something on film and projecting it back to life and the power of filmed images and in this the way that Gwen's dreams are presented as sort of yes scratchy Super 8 style footage and dreaming in Super 8 and dreaming and visions and filmmaking and capturing things and salvation through that because that is the way that Gwen is able to find Finny. There feels like something in that I love his fascination and his kind of obsession with oldie timey film, old school film, and how that ties into the way that certain characters like see things and see the world. I mean, also just on a basic storytelling level, I think it's very useful. It gives her something to do while Finney's locked up. She's not just, you know, going around sticking up posters around tree, on trees around town or whatever um, and it also gives you that great scene early on where you see how desperate the police are that they're coming to ask yeah. questions of this little girl on the basis of one of her dreams that they heard about from somebody like third hand so if just from a storytelling point of view it works very well but also just maybe because we're familiar with it from The Shining maybe because this has some of that same kind of 70s kids on bike kind of energy as, as it it feels of a piece with some of the mood of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I prefer I preferred this to it's chapter one. See, for me, it gave me that same thing of I'm not like boo scared, but oh my god, you've made me really care for these kids, and I'm scared for bad things to happen to them. It hit me in in that place. It felt kind of of a piece with it, chapter one for mm-hmm. me, because of that feeling. Yeah, and very like I say, Stranger Things as well for me. But again more focused than Stranger Things. And It so Chapter really. 2 because James Ransone is here and... Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Ah. Yes. Jeez, how, how did I forget? How did I forget? Anyway, you know, he still remains Siggy from The Wire, so... Oh God, the poor duck. Don't give alcohol to a duck. <laughs> you idiot. That's something the grabber would do. Yeah, big grabber energy there. If you ask me, huge grabber energy. And on that note, I think that is it for our Le Black Phone spoiler special. I hope you've enjoyed it, unless you're a grabber, in which case I hope you've not enjoyed it. And I hope it's made you think long and hard about grabbing. Don't do it. Don't do it. But for everyone else, we hope that this podcast has been a grabber. Oh no. Oh dear. Anyway, thank you for subscribing. It really does mean a lot to us. Our next sport special is, um, I don't know, just listen for a ringing phone and maybe then we'll tell you on that. But anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Wait, does that make us small ghost children? Anyway, toodaloo. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say. Uh, it's goodbye from Ben Travis. Bring, bring. 
Hello, Ben. Bring, bring. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Not Ben. I don't know you. Um, yes. Hello, caller. Hello. Uh, I, I just to clarify straight up, I'm not a ghost child, uh, but I heard you were doing... That sounds suspiciously <laughs> like something a ghost child would say right off the bat. No, the ghost children are very honest. Okay. I can't remember my name, but that's besides the point right now. <laughs> Where are you calling from, ghost child? Uh, some kind of basement somewhere. <laughs> but I heard that you were doing a top 10 creators of time and place in storytelling. Were um, we? <laughs> we were. Oh, yeah. that's yeah, right. We Stephen were. King. We were. For yes. Stephen King. I, I, didn't, slash Joe I didn't actually Hill. tell people to ring in, but yeah. okay. You're a ghost child. So uh, but you I'm have, a ghost child. That's yeah. the rules of ghost children. That's the Them's rules. the yeah. rules. Uh, I would like to throw um, Richard Linklater into that mix, uh, who's feeling of films that, uh, that he creates as well, I felt in The Black Phone. So I just all like right, to throw all right, that all right. in the ring. <laughs> Top 10 creators of time and place. Are you but kidding me? We were talking authors, though. Authors of great movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, this gold, ghost child is really reaching for it. Yeah, it really is. But uh, if you're a ghost child and you have any <laughs> more contributions to our top 10 creators of... This is the weirdest top 10 ever. <laughs> top 10 creators of a great feeling of time in place, uh, either in literature or on cinema, or hey, why not in music or art oh and theatre? Then ring in the numbers 0800 600 600 uh, and you can uh, go on Twitter. The hashtag is Ghost Child. Anyway, that is it. Uh, That's goodbye from me. I am off now to watch The Tingler, followed closely by The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just like Finney would do. Absolutely damn straight. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Say no to grabbing. <laughs>